Today on Explorations in Psychotherapy, we are welcoming IFS practitioner, teacher, and author, Mr. Robert Falconer. Bob has an undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology with a focus on the history of religions and a master's degree in psychology. Bob has been extensively trained in multiple therapeutic modalities, but he's devoted himself to the internal family systems model for over 10 years as he has found it to be the most compassionate and potent way to work with severe trauma. At this point in his career, he's increasingly focused on the spiritual dimensions of healing. He has published seven books and co-edited four. Today, we will be speaking with him about his new book, an Amazon bestseller in transpersonal psychology and psychology and religion, which represents the culmination of decades of in-depth research called The Others Within Us, Internal Family Systems, Porous Mind, and Spirit Possession. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here with you too. Welcome, Bob, and congratulations on your new book, The Others Within Us. It's an amazing long work, a decade of research, as you say, so well written and with a remarkable amount of literature review. As Dick also says, you have done an impressive amount of research on how the unattached burden phenomenon is understood and dealt with around the world, and you lay out clear guidelines and examples for using IFS to unload these complex energies and charges. Why this interest of yours in this complex topic, Bob? Well, it was a big case I had uh, about 10 years ago now, uh, more or less. I was, I was acting as a PA in a level one training, and it, I was in one of the practice groups, and there was a, this woman was the client, and this man was working with her, and she had this, what first looked like an internal critic, but it was just mean, mean, nasty, no good intention. And I had this idea, oh, this is one of those unattached burdens I've heard a little bit about. And I told the guy, I don't think you've had any training in this. Could I take over the session? And he said, please. And, and the, the way this thing was showing up in the woman was as a bloodshot eyeball with legs. And it would just say the meanest, nastiest stuff to her. And when we asked, well, what's good about criticizing her? There was nothing good in there. It was just, I'll destroy her, and she won't be on the planet anymore, and stuff like that. And so I, ha I just knew the, a little skeleton outline of what you're supposed to do with these things. So I just, you know, had her ask this thing, are you a part of me? And it didn't want to answer the question, and it avoided the question. And it said stuff like, well, I've been around a long time, and, you know, it wouldn't answer the question. And I just kept pushing And then after a while, it said, you're supposed to be a teacher. That's a really stupid question. Don't you have anything smarter to ask? And, and I said, oh, it may be stupid, but it's simple. Are you a part of her? And after a few more exchanges like this, it finally answered. And it said, no, I'm not a part of her. I'm a much more glorious being. And I'm going to crush you like a worm the same way I'm going to crush her. That was an unattached burden. It was not part of her system. And using very crude, basic tools, I, I didn't know anything about this, was able to get it out of her system. It tried to sneak back in. We got it out again. And 
um, everything seemed okay. I was able to debrief the little triad in a quite a rational way. But when I went into the staff meeting after that, my core body temperature dropped about four degrees and I was shivering uncontrollably and I couldn't get warm even with blankets and people holding me. It was, it was a very unsettling experience. And people were teasing me, you know, Bob Ghostbuster. And I was getting really angry. So I was obviously in parts and really triggered all over the place. But anyway, over, over the night, I decided that was just some weird happenstance thing. I'm going to ignore this and pretend it didn't happen. And then she went home and I got these long, long emails from the, from the airport. I'm seeing colors I've never seen before. I can see the divine in everyone. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I triggered a major manic episode. I'm in deep trouble, <laughs> bad trouble. And then she sent another email that really scared me. She said, well, I didn't tell you this, but when I was a young woman, I tried to kill myself repeatedly and was institutionalized many times. And now I was thinking, oh, boy, <laughs> oh, Bob. And then she sent me this email that changed the direction of my life. She said, you're the first human being to ever believe me when I tried to talk about the non-human in me. Thank you so much. Back then, they gave me electroshock. They put me in restraints and forced me to take drugs. Thank you. You've changed my life. And then as much as I wanted to pretend this hadn't happened, I couldn't, you know, because with hardly any skills or knowledge, you know, I had this huge impact on a woman. And before she'd been institutionalized for this exact same phenomenon. That, that was the start. I've followed her all along. And right after the book was published, I got an email from her saying she's still so grateful for my intervening beating back then. It changed the course of her life. But she told me very sadly that she now has stage four cancer and, and is, you know, and ending her life. But she did take the time to express gratitude still. So it was a change that took less than an hour that had this major impact on a woman's life. And it was very unsettling to me because I thought I sort of had the world figured out. I had this trauma-oriented view of psych, you know, psychopathology, and I'd spent decades putting it together. And all of a sudden, this thing from left field that I know nothing about comes in there and messes up my whole neat worldview in a way that I could not ignore. We're wondering, you know, there are a number of our listeners who aren't at all familiar with this concept. So if you could just take a moment to define for us what you mean by the others within us and just give us an idea of how this phenomenon has been viewed across cultures, traditions. In IFS, these things are usually paired, unattached burdens and guides, and I like to pair them. There are energies in our system that are not part of our personal system. The one that almost everybody knows about is legacy burdens. And thanks to the science of epigenetics and some wonderful experiments, especially the Diaz-Ressler experiment, th there's hard science here. These things happen. They get in people. They have huge effects. We know about that. 
They're also energies that are external to our personal life that get into us that we don't really know where they come from. Now, these energies can have huge negative or positive effects on people's lives. And I think the metaphor most commonly used in world history for these kind of energies is spirit possession or contact with the Holy Spirit. Now, this drives a lot of people, like Dick or very many rational people, sort of crazy and round the bend, and they don't want to hear this. Uh, but in anthropology, it's totally you know okay to talk about spirit possession. And I just want to try and frame this in a way that makes sense to hardcore materialist rationalists. There is a psychodynamic phenomena that has occurred in ev almost every culture we have record of and every era of history. And it can have profound life-changing effects on people negatively or positively. The metaphor most often used to describe this is spirit possession. Whatever metaphor or language we choose, this is worthy of study. I mean, come on, gang. Bob, Dick Schwartz wrote a long foreword for your book where he shares two main concerns or fears regarding publishing this book. The first is that IFS would be discredited, particularly in bastions Dick hopes to continue to influence, such as traditional psychiatry and psychology. The second fear is that by writing on this topic, you would contribute to a mistake Dick believes to be common around the world, extreme protectors' parts to be misunderstood and assumed to be evil entities or demons and subjected to exercising rituals. Dick says that initially many protectors resemble Ubis in declaring that all they want to do is hurt or destroy the person or other people, and if threatened they will maintain or escalate their extreme positions, which can result in damage to that person or others. Dick reminds us that if, on the other hand, protectors are approached with curiosity and even compassion, eventually they will reveal their protective intention and can be transformed into their natural, valuable states. So, Bob, can it be that we just become impatient towards some protectors? Definitely. I mean, people are impatient toward their protectors most of the time. I would say that's standard operating procedure. And very often, when there are polarizations in a system, and I've never met anyone without them, Each side of the polarization will point to the other side and say, hey, that doesn't belong. Get rid of that one. <laughs> and they both want you to throw out the other ones. So it is one of the most important rules in working with these things is assume it's a part, assume it's a part, and then assume it's a part again until it's actually proven to be something that's alien to the system or not part of the system. There's a quote I love that, Pretty much every doctor in America in medical school hears, which is, when you hear hoofbeats, do not think about zebras. You want to think about horses, donkeys, cows, <laughs> sheep, <laughs> all the more common things. So that's the way it is here. Now, I want to say one more thing about certain, 
there's a certain class of protectors that people most often mistake for a UB. And that would be the ones that are often called perpetrator interjects. When a young child is being abused, what's the source of power in that room? The perpetrator. So very often some heroic part of that child goes out and assumes some of that perpetrator energy to try and protect the whole system. And then the rest of the system hates that part because it's got the perpetrator energy. So this part has sacrificed everything to protect the system. And as its only reward, it gets hated by all the other parts. So these especially require a very tender welcome and a lot of patience, because very often they have never felt any compassion coming towards them. So, and these are the ones that I think most often get mistaken for unattached burdens. And if that happens, it causes immense damage. So assume it's a part, assume it's a part, <laughs> assume it's a part. And there are things in there that are not parts. It's it's really important what what you're talking about now because we we do see this a lot and I was wondering you started to already do this actually but if you could give us like specific guidelines on how would therapists or practitioners distinguish extreme protectors including those carrying the, this type of perpetrator energy from UBs specifically how we do that the first thing is intention intention what are you here for what do you want and you have to drill down layer after layer after layer. Suicidal parts, a lot of times people want to throw those out. Why do you want to kill her? What's good? The, quest, the question I like is, what's good about whatever it is? What's good about, you know, killing her? Well, then she wouldn't be on the planet anymore. Well, what's good about her not being on the planet anymore? And you just, you, sometimes you can go six, eight, 10 layers down, what's good about, what's good about. And if you finally get to something like, well, then she wouldn't be in pain anymore, that's a part. If you get to something like, well, that means I win, that's probably not a part. So intention is the number one thing. The second thing is ask it directly, are you a part of the system? Now, these things lie all the time, but they don't seem to be able to lie about this question when it's asked persistently and calmly. They'll avoid it. They'll give half answers, but they don't seem to be point blank able to lie. So just like in that first example I gave, it was just steady, calm. Are you a part of the system? Are you a part of the system? And I've had some people from other cultures say, oh, they can lie about this. But that, you know, that's like maybe one, two percent. Overwhelmingly, no. So those are the first two big rules. And if you're in doubt at all, treat it as a part. Super helpful. Thank you. And so this phenomenon of unattached burdens, it was something that originally was not discussed in level one or level two IFS trainings partially because of trainers 
concerns that therapists and practitioners who were newer to IFS, they might not yet have enough experience with protectors to know that they might appear in all kinds of ways, including very extreme ways, and then they might try to send them out of the system, just assuming they were UBs. But these days, honestly, people are asking questions about unattached burdens, even in pre-level one courses. So we're wondering, how would you recommend that trainers respond to these questions in a way that honors the curiosity and the needs of the trainees and also reduces the risk of doing them doing damage to their client systems. The first thing I want to say is sort of snarky, and you guys might want to edit it out, but I hope you don't. I think a big reason a lot of the trainers didn't want to talk about this is because they're scared of it themselves. Most people are scared of this. It just takes me a little bit on a detour, but it's a really important one. These things get power in us by scaring us. When we're not scared of them, they lose all power. And, you know, th this, this is straight from Dick. I'm not, this is not a Bobism. And it's super important. So the way to work with these things is not some kind of battle like in the exorcism movies. It's to find all the parts who are scared of them and then do classic IFS of establishing a two-way self-part relationship with that part who's scared until it's comfortably attached to self. And that if you just do that in a patient, classical IFS way, all the connections to these things fall away. Now, you wanted to ask about how to respond to newbies about these things. I would say uh, be really forthright. I think the desire to hide this subject is also fear-based, you know, and it, it, it makes things worse. I, you know, I just say some of the stuff I already said, well, you know, all parts are welcome. Most of the stuff's all parts and they're things that get into our system that are not part of us. And, you know, for example, legacy burdens. And then there's this other stuff too. And just assume it's a part over, 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 over. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bob, in the foreword for your book, Dick describes a similar approach to the one you describe in the book regarding the protocol for coping with UBs, but his explanation of this phenomenon looked to me a bit more cautious. Dick says, and I'm quoting him, At this point, I consider UBs to be far less human-like, even though you can interact with them, than parts. Instead, I believe they are the manifestation of extreme beliefs and emotions that our minds personify. Do you want to comment on this, Bob? This brings up a really important issue, which is that in philosophy, they talk a lot about what's called personalism. There, it isn't really a separate school of philosophy, but it's a, a trend that's found in many schools of philosophy. And basically, the idea behind personalism is that the, the, the idea of what is a person is the more fundamental mystery than, for example, what is consciousness. The, quote, hard problem of consciousness is an easy problem compared to the problem of what is a person. And as Dick realized early on in IFS, 
he said, well, we can't know what these parts are, but if we treat them as full spectrum people, we get better results. And that's something pragmatically we can know pretty directly. We get, you know, a good seat of the pants, practical feel for this. And I would say the same thing applies to UBs and guides. We don't really know what they are, but if we treat them as full spectrum people, we get better results. And that's something as a clinician with, a, with not, not a tremendous amount of experience, but some experience, it becomes pretty obvious. So, I mean, we could get into rarefied philosophical debates about what these are, but that would serve us very well, even though I love that kind of stuff. So based on the idea that one of the ways that unattached burdens can enter a person's system is if the person is not fully embodied, do you have any concerns about psychedelic-assisted therapy making people more vulnerable to ending up with these types of energies or entities in their systems? And if so, what can be done to reduce that risk? Definitely. It happens a lot. The the interesting thing is the vast majority of these experiences are positive. Um, I'm going to go off on a little. You know, one thing I don't like in IFS's nomenclature is you talk about UBs and guides. And just in naming them, you have to make a judgment right at the beginning, this one's a bad guy and this one's a good guy. I think that's very unfortunate because that's not often obvious at all. So that's why I like the name The Others Within, because it's just, hey, there's some, some presence here that doesn't feel like it's part of my personality. Or the great anthropologist, Tanya Lorman, she talks about spiritual presence experiences or spiritual presence events in her more recent writing, she's using that phrase, which again, it, you don't have to decide, is this a good guy or a bad guy right away? You know, it's just, hey, there's something here which doesn't feel like it's part of me at all. Now, what was the, what was the question? Well, I was just curious if the use of psychedelics might make people more vulnerable. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it definitely happens. And the vast majority of these contacts with others within are positive. So this, that's why, you know, are they UBs or guides? Uh, Roland Griffiths, who's the head of research at John Hopkins, the longest going psychedelic research program in the world, and has done, he's, most of his research was on uh, end of life care with psilocybin. But he, he's a very, very rigorous scientist and a statistician. He's done two separate surveys of, um, they call them entities, which is a word Dick absolutely hates, but uh, and DMT entities, entities that appear in DMT-induced experiences. Now, DMT is the active ingredient in psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, many other medicines. From his research, which you can find online at his website for free, about 50% of the people who do high-dose DMT experience entities, intelligent, conscious beings who come and talk to them and interact with them and have relationships with them. But the vast majority are positive. Guides, teachers, something like that. But there are negative ones, too. 
And other people, some researchers in England who gave much higher doses said, oh, it's not 50%, it's 90%. So with this kind of background, these are like the hard science guys of psychedelics saying this. The more clinical background is, yeah, I've picked up the pieces after a lot of psychedelic sessions where entities or UBs or whatever you want to call it got into people. I think it's a fairly common experience. Is there anything that can be done to make it safer? Yeah. Yeah. I think the revolution IFS brings, or one of the revolutions IFS brings to psychedelic assisted therapy, is that the preparation sessions should focus on getting permission from all the protectors. When you get permission from all the parts beforehand, the system isn't at war with itself under the, the powerful influence of the psychedelics. And I think the system's much less permeable to negative energies getting in there and much more self-present during the sessions. And I think the press, if the guide uh, is in self during the session, it helps a lot. And still, it's probably going to happen every once in a while. These things get into me, they get into Dick, but since we're not that afraid of them anymore, it's not a big deal. I want to tell a story and you can edit it out later if it's too much. This is about a woman who got uh, a UB in her during a ayahuasca ceremony. Now, ayahuasca ceremonies seem to especially produce a lot of UBs because they're group experiences. So there's all sorts of energy floating around a room. I think if it's one client and a, one or two sitters, much less likely. Anyway, she went to a poorly run ayahuasca ceremony and felt really weird and then started going home. And she went into a full-blown florid psychotic episode on the way home and ended up being um, institutionalized against her will. This was in California. Her parents came out from Chicago to drive her back to Chicago. Four times on that drive back, they had to stop and get her reinstitutionalized because she was trying to jump out of the car. And I mean, something really bad was going on in this woman. And they got home and, you know, a little bit of stability. And she had a cousin or something who was psychic. And the cousin said to her, just say to this thing, I have nothing here for you but love. And say that as a mantra over and over and over. And that's what this woman did to whatever this negative energy was in her. And it left her alone. Oh, wow. She came to me later because she said, you know, what was that? I'm afraid it's going to come back. You know, sort of like stabilization. And yes, they seem to be allergic to love. But she also said, maybe it was just the realization that it was something foreign in me rather than some falling apart of who I am that was causing all this distress. Exactly. So uh, that was a very dramatic, florid example. And that, you know, the woman's absolutely fine now and she's doing real good work and blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Bob, on chapter seven of your book, you offer a seven steps cheat sheet. There you suggest as step one, work with the fear. 
as step two, assume it's a part until proven otherwise. Can you tell us a bit more about the IFS-based procedures you recommend using to get UBs out of client systems? Well, I pointed out in the book, uh, everybody wants a cheat sheet, something to grab onto when you're in these weird realms where everything's, where it's, it's I'm going to go off a little story again. One of my favorite quotes comes from a Cherokee shaman, and I found out it was a female shaman whose name I can't pronounce. Our foundations are ripped out from under us over and over and over again until the abyss itself becomes our foundation. And that's what meeting UBs and guides has been like for me. All my foundations are gone, and it's quite disorienting. So I think that's why people like these cheat sheets and outlines and stuff like that, because it gives you the illusion that you have some foundation. And I point out in the, in the book that I don't think a single one of the case studies I gave, and I gave a lot, I don't know, 16, 20, something like that, actually follows my own cheat sheet. It's more like an intentions or tasks that need to be accomplished kind, kind of approach. One of the things that we can see when we're trying to help clients unload UBs from their systems is that they have parts that hold fears about letting go of the UBs. So some parts have depended on them in some way or on the power, the protection they've provided. So how do you address that issue? First thing I want to say is the first thing you have to address is your own fears of UBs. Otherwise, you shouldn't be doing this. You should refer it out to somebody. And that's often a big issue for therapists. For me, I had to like, I didn't really abandon everything I'd learned in 30, 40 years of being a therapist, but that became this small part here. And, oh, there's all this other stuff out here. That's very disorienting. And uh, I think the phrase is egotistonic, to realize how ignorant I've been. <laughs> these dicks, as these uh, UBs get in, always, well, they used to say always, by promising power to the powerless. You know, some little kids being hurt or abused, it feels absolutely powerless. This UB comes in, it looks rah, 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 big and rah, rah, rah. And, and so there's a promise of power. They don't really give power. They give a, it's like cocaine or something. They give a little rush, but they take more back. They're always at the end of the day a parasite. I now believe they also often promise companionship to the isolated and abandoned. Yeah, so it's this part is all classic IFS. You find the part, self-part relationship. How do you feel towards that part? Can the part feel that? And you can be confident that if you're patient, the part's going to come to you. Because at the end of the day, the UB is always a parasite, always draining energy, and the self-part connection always feeds and makes the part stronger. So if you're just patient and stay with that classic IFS work, it, the part's going to attach to self and the UB will fall away. I want to say one other thing. One of the huge revolutions of doing this kind of work, we don't need any of that exorcist fighting stuff. The UBs actually love it if they can provoke a fight. That actually keeps them connected. And it causes a lot of damage to the person. It's like, you know, ripping it out of their flesh. And there's, you know, ugh. 
it's dramatic and it can make the therapist look like this spiritual hero, but I think it's poison. So it can all be done in a very friendly way. And my feeling, my basic, my pragmatic way of acting is I tend to think of all these beings as lost souls who are suffering horribly and clinging to the person out of their own desperation and fear. And I just, I say stuff like that to them. You know, we don't want to judge you or punish you. We want to help you go where you can heal. We know you've experienced tremendous suffering and you are suffering. You've never been able to get what you need here. We can help you go to healing realms. And very often the parting is quite peaceful. And oftentimes the UB says, gee, I'm really sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. Now that's very different than the traditional exorcism, damn them to hell kind of scenario. Bob, Dick also shared that uh, guides started showing up in his client systems about the same time as the UBs. Different clients with very different backgrounds and religious beliefs spontaneously began saying things like, a beam of light has suddenly appeared and I'm getting the message from it that I'm on the right track, or I see a hazy figure who is embracing my little girl and she feels extremely comforted. When asked about this part's role in their system, clients would say some version of it says it's not a part, but it does want to help. So, Bob, what are guides? And do we need guides? Isn't self enough to guide our lives? Are these really spiritual encounters or simply manifestations of higher levels of consciousness within these clients? Again, I, I stick with radical pragmatism. I'm a big fan of William James. He's one of my heroes. And he, his idea of radical pragmatism, he went quite far with it. What works is what's real. So I don't know if these are fragments of our own deep wisdom or some kind of spirit being coming down from some interdimensional space I know nothing about, but I can... And I've, I've really had to discipline myself because I'm a very curious man. You know, when somebody's in front of me and they're suffering, my contract, my job is to help relieve their suffering. Not to do research, not to learn interesting stuff about the farther reaches of the inner world, even though I really want to do. It actually takes me a lot of discipline to stay with there's a suffering being right here what works the best, and then make that my standard of truth. That being said, guides are energies that we experience as coming from outside of us that have very benevolent uh, impact on a person's system. And William James talked about this, and he used the uh, somewhat religious language of his day he talked about it as conversion experiences. And he pointed out that people could have an experience in a day or an afternoon or an hour, which changed the entire course of their life from then on. 
in a in a very good way. And he said, he said, as therapists, as healers, we should be studying this. This is what we would like to be able to do, right? See somebody for an hour and change the whole course of their life. But we haven't been studying this. And very often, this is some kind of contact with something that the person experiences as a guide energy. I want to say one more thing that's really important here. I think it's super important that we learn the client's language, the client's mythology, the client's story, the client's metaphors, and let go of ours. And I know when I was in grad school way back a thousand years ago, they taught us these fancy languages and we were supposed to pound that into the heads of our clients and train them up, do psychoeducation on the poor little demons. The poor little, you know, it was a very arrogant attitude, but we should learn the language and accept the metaphors of our clients. And if they are talking about guides, that's fine. I don't have any need to argue or debate that. I'll just go with their language and what works. In the book, when you're talking about UBs, you say these things can't help but show us where we need to heal. The parts where the UBs attach need our care and love. Removing UBs can help us find deeply hidden parts and inadvertently facilitate the client's healing. So we're wondering if you can comment on that. This is the most beautiful thing I've learned as I got deeper and deeper into this. And I want to say, you know, after that first case, I sort of put it out. Hey, anybody have cases like this? Anybody interested in this? And most people went, nah, you're weird, you know, go away. But then I started getting a lot of referrals because other people didn't want to deal with this. And it sort of made me an outcast for a while. You know, Dick didn't want me talking about this. Other people didn't want me talking about this. So it's been sort of lonely doing this. But yeah, the metaphor I like is UBs are often like ants in the kitchen. The ants are obviously not trying to help you out. <laughs> you know, that's clear. But they can't help but show you where you spilled the food. They make a nice trail right to where your food spilled. It's like that inside. The UBs naturally go to whatever part is most hurting, most lonely, most frightened, what you know, whatever that condition is, and they will try and attach there. And so they show us what most needs our attention next inside a person. And that's that's incredibly good information. And that's another reason why we don't want to go into some kind of combative struggle with them. We want to carefully see how they're attached and what part they are still attached to, and then do classic IFS with that part. And it, it is, it's classical IFS. And that's the bulk of this work. Thank you so much. Bob, you say that the work of inviting guides and connecting with them mostly involves clearing and cleaning our interior world. So there is welcoming room for them in us a process you call kenosis. You also say there are at least two levels of this emptying and blending from parts and removing UBs. So it looks like a natural step following this clearing and cleaning process 
is to invite guides in order to have access to a higher spiritual experience. Am I seeing it right? Yeah. Um, what I do, I, you know, like I'm saying, we need to learn our client's language. And that's so important. So I try not to put anything in there. And I'll, if, if we just, even if we just did a deep unburdening of an exile in traditional IFS, or if we just got a UB out, I'll often say something like, you know, at times like this, some people experience a sense of guidance or connection with something deep inside them, or even a guide showing up. Let's just pause for a moment and see if anything like that happens for you. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if anything like that will happen. And then just wait a little bit and get them to be curious about their own inner experience. And very often something like that shows up. And I had one guy, he was, a, he, he was an Orthodox Jew. And he'd gotten a and big, big thing out, just a regular burden. And then we did this and he, he looks up and he smacks himself in the forehead and he says, Oh shit, it's Jesus. Wow. And I reminded him that Jesus was, Jesus was not a Christian. <laughs> this might be okay. <laughs> and he was able to go with it. The concept of the natural multiplicity of the mind and the idea that there are no bad parts, these were key elements of the massive paradigm shift in the world of psychotherapy associated with IFS. And it seems that the concept of the porousness of the mind that you discuss in your book could represent an equally massive paradigm shift. So we're wondering if you could say something about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is. And I think, I mean, my 10 years of research and you know, the bibliography in my book is like 32 pages of relatively small print. So I do my homework. I think I'm barely scratching the surface of this issue of porosity of mind. And I think it's super important. If you start to think of it, even for a minute, all living systems are surrounded by semi-permeable membranes. All cells are like that. Stuff comes in, stuff goes out. The only thing with rigid boundaries is dead. <laughs> you know, forests are like that. Stuff. Every, every living system at every level has that uh, characteristic of a semi-permeable membrane. Why would our minds be any different? I mean, it's ludicrous to assume that our minds are different. And again, I'll go to Tanya Lorman, that great anthropologist. She says, she actually says that the, the kind of model of mind we have determines how well a culture responds to mental illness. And she said, in the West, we have what she calls the citadel model of mind. We have this underlying belief that our minds are enclosed in this nice bony skull. Everything inside them is private. It's our property. And um, it constitutes our identity. Now, that seems like a strong, powerful position, but actually, it's incredibly brittle and fragile. So somebody with that citadel model of mind has, here's a voice that's not their voice. They shatter. 
They absolutely shatter, and it's a devastating experience. Somebody in a culture that has a porous model of mind, that expects voices of dead relatives or other spirits or nature to talk to them, they're not shattered by that same kind of experience. And there's all sorts of other stuff. There's a philosopher at McGill, um, Charles Taylor, who talked about the buffered self, which is, again, this sort of armored self. And he thinks it's a, the cause underlying the, uh, the sense of alienation that started emerging big time in the 20th century. Well, you know, and you start thinking about it a little, well, if you have this isolated model of mind, of course you're going to feel alienated. And there's other thinkers who say, yeah, this, this, this way of defining self is what's the basic cause of the epidemic of mental illness we are experiencing now, and we are experiencing an epidemic of mental illness. And there's all sorts of other stuff I could talk to about this. Like I said, I'm just scratching the surface on this. I want to, one other thing, you know, I think Dick, I think what Dick has done is secure and solid, and nobody's going to make it go away now. Maybe I'm a little optimistic, but the, this idea of multiplicity and self, that, I don't think that's going anywhere now. I think it's really well established. And I'm with you on that. People feel understood in a way they never have been before. They can interact with their with their own systems in ways that are so helpful to them. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere either. The results that we're seeing in the in the treatment in the work that we're doing. Bob, at this point in your career, you say you are increasingly focused on the spiritual dimension of healing, and you also describe your work as spiritual care. Do you see IFS as a model offering people what they would need for spiritual care? Yeah, and oh, this is a little rude, but I'll be a little rude. I think IFS sort of dumbs down spirituality, so it's acceptable to materialists. Can you say more on that? You know, it gets it down to such a level that even the most rigid uh, materialist, scientific, rationalist, the logic and the progression is just irresistible. You know, I think that my earlier career was all in major trauma child abuse, you know. I don't think anyone heals from that without a spiritual basis. I don't think it matters very much what the spiritual basis is. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, shamanism, Buddhism, Hindu, that doesn't seem to matter very much, but they got to have some sense of higher power, meaning, connection, something like that somewhere, or their healing really falls short. And I think Dick's concept of self opens up that world. Well, thank you so much for having us. 
wishing your book a wonderful journey as for your coming teachings on this topic. It was a joy to be here with you and Lexi, and we hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always fun to be with you too. Thank you, Bob. <laughs>